When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update. My friends call me Lenny. You can call me whatever you want. And you know, I'm not much of a UFO guy. Definitely interested in the phenomenon of people who think that there is such a thing as extraterrestrial visitations. But I don't have an opinion on the subject either way, other than to say... I don't have an opinion <laughs> either way. Um, but, you know, I spoke to a couple people over the last few months that had some really interesting kind of angles on what's going on. And I just thought I would present them to you in this episode. So my first guest is Eric Smith. In addition to being one of my oldest and dearest friends, Eric is a MUFON investigator uh, based in Providence, Rhode Island. Now, the Mutual UFO Network is one of the larger or the larger organizations in the country that actively catalogs and investigates UFO sightings. In 2018, the uh, Pennsylvania MUFON, I guess it was the head of MUFON in Pennsylvania, whatever that's called, um, he was just caught posting really weird kind of racist stuff on social media and eventually had to resign and then here we are two years later just just about exactly two years later and the state director of rhode island new jersey and new and vermont uh was basically caught doing the same thing and i asked eric to come on and talk about that because he was one of the people that that took a stand with MUFON and, you know, some leadership was changed because of that. And also, it's, it's really interesting how he kind of explains how the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, is uh, really kind of a weird, seems to be, at least in its membership, like a, a conservative, very conservative organization, kind of at odds with like where UFOlogy is in the current era. Or for that matter, where society at large is in the current era. And after this, we'll talk to Andrew Gitlitz. His uh, byline is A.M. Gitlitz, and he is the author of I Want to Believe, Posadism, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism. Now, this is a pretty fascinating story. This uh, dude, Jay Posadas, from Argentina, got into communism specifically uh, took the side of Trotsky following Trotsky's expulsion from the Soviet Union so Passad his version of communism included uh, ufology talking dolphins or communications with dolphins somehow and um, and a real enthusiasm for nuclear war it just goes to show you you know UFO culture ufology exists on all ends of the political spectrum. So we'll get to our talk with A.M. Gitlitz after a bit, but first, let's talk to Eric Smith. Well, um, my name's Eric Smith, and I am the sole 
uh, UFO investigator from MUFON here in Rhode Island. Um, and I was also, until recently, the national director for Sweden. And I've been operating here in Rhode Island for almost five years and uh, done about 50 cases um, up until now. I think I, I think I, my last couple that I wrapped up put me right at, right at 50. So, you know, Rhode Island doesn't get a ton of um, reports compared to other states that are like the highest, which is California, Texas, and Florida. Um, tend to get about one a month here or one every other month or maybe one month I'll get two or three and then none for a few months but that's generally the the, the flow which which works for me because uh it, it allows me to spend as much time on the cases as I need without getting like over um overloaded or overwhelmed or feeling like I can't do it I mean uh Sweden um was also really pulling in just a, a case every couple months. And I've got an investigator there uh, who is great. She's wonderful. And I basically just assign all the cases to her and she handles them. Um, so that's, that's, that's what I've been doing for MUFON for the last four to five years. And then in the past uh, year, I've been doing, I've been getting invited to talk at libraries around uh, Rhode Island, which I had been doing somewhat regularly up until uh, the shutdown. So when uh, libraries and stuff open back up, I'm hoping to get back out to um, some of the libraries I've already talked at because they'd like to have me back and uh, to find some new places to, to speak and do some, um, you know, to give some talks about what's going on. So you were uh, in charge of Sweden. Uh, and I understand there's been some controversy. There's been controversy with MUFON for several years now. Um, maybe you could go into that a little bit? Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, I had started to become, well, I'd become aware of some of the stuff that had happened before I came on the scene uh, with uh, John Ventre and the Pennsylvania thing and, and some other weird folks involved with MUFON who seemed to be um, racist <laughs> and uh, just basically... Um, you know, terrible people. And and when you say r racist or terrible people, I mean, is that at home when they're talking to their wives or is that like social media? Like what's going on there? Yeah. On social media, the John Ventre thing was because he had gotten into a, you know, discussion on his private Facebook page and dropped a bunch of, you know, racist, um, you know, opinions and, 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 and really lost his cool and just said a bunch of shitty things and was supposedly removed from MUFON. And then um, the, the new uh, um, Chris Cogswell, who had come on board and he does the podcast, uh, the mad scientist podcast. And he's a really awesome guy. And it was really exciting when he came on board MUFON because he was going to be sort of like a scientific consultant for MUFON. He worked for MUFON for a couple months, and then he found out that John Ventre was still involved with MUFON in some way, and after he had been told that he wasn't. So he, he quit MUFON at that point, um, and, uh, you know, this is where I had started to, 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 to learn about a lot of the stuff. I really wasn't, you know, privy, or I, did, I didn't really know a lot of this stuff before it happened. Um, you know, I worked for MUFON here in Rhode Island, but I'm not, I'm not really deep in the weeds of all of the, you know, behind the scenes stuff and things that happen in other states. I really am just don't have the, the, the time really to know everything. So when this was brought to my attention, this was probably about two years ago, I started to really think about move on. And, you know, it, certainly I wouldn't want to work for a, or be associated with, with an organization that allows this to go on. But, um, What's, what what had felt different to me here in Rhode Island is that um, up until recently was that I kind of, my post here in Rhode Island, I kind of liken it to um, in Dances with Wolves where when Kevin Costner gets assigned to the base in the middle of nowhere and then the guy who assigns him there kills himself. So no one knows that Kevin Costner is out in the middle of nowhere. That's kind of what I feel like here in Rhode Island. Um, the, the state director, Ken Pfeiffer, um, doesn't live in Rhode Island. 
Um, I, and I was the sole investigator here and he pretty much let me do whatever I want here. Um, he pretty much let me, you know, yeah, let me go without any real guidance, which was good and bad because I, I felt like I was smart enough to sort of figure it out. Um, and in a way it was, it, it was just, it felt nice. I kind of felt like I had the freedom here to do it how I wanted to do it. And I have been up until now. So John Ventry, he was the state director of Pennsylvania. Is that correct? Yes. If I'm remembering that correctly, he was the state director of Pennsylvania. And after this, so it wasn't like just some rando member mouthing off. You no. Know, it was yeah, like it, it, really yeah, reflected exactly. on the on MUFON. He was someone who was in a supervisory position in a state that has a large MUFON presence. You know, they weren't like here in Rhode Island where it's just me and maybe one other person. Pennsylvania's got a pretty extensive um, MUFON membership. And he was, it, it's one of the, you know, one of the heavy hitter states. You know, it's one of the big ones. So exactly. It's not like he was just some asshole who was an investigator. Just happened to be looking at this uh, Newsweek article with a pretty good, uh, <laughs> pretty good article. The title: What? What? What if aliens meet, met racists? And um, <laughs> yeah, and there's like, and it has one of his Facebook posts, and it's like complaining about that Netflix show, Dear White People, um, and talking about how like how white males are the absolute target of government and affirmative action and all this stuff. So it's pretty ugly. Like, you know, he's saying, you know, Google serotonin by race, IQ by race and violent crime by race. You know, it's, I mean, it's pretty, you know, gross stuff. Well, he had either stepped down or was removed from his directorship. And again, it's been a while since I read a lot of the details about this. So I might be getting some of the details wrong, but essentially he was not the director of Pennsylvania anymore. And then, when I, I believe what happened is that when Chris Cogswell was um, discussing with MUFON about what to do for their upcoming symposium, when he went to get in touch with them about he, he was going to do something for the, the symposium, since he was now the science consultant, um, he found out that John Ventry was in some way in charge of organizing something having to do with either speakers or vendors at the symposium, the, con the yearly convention. So he was still very much involved with the inner circle of MUFON helping to organize their, you know, their main, their yearly big event, the, the MUFON symposium, which happens every year in different places, usually down in really some places like Las Vegas that no one ever wants to fucking go to anyway. But um, yeah, and that's when he decided to, to quit. He resigned and he, um, you know, talked about it on his podcast and I completely uh, agree with him and understand. And for him, that was the right thing to do. And that's when I started questioning, like, what, what is my role in all this? What, you know, where am I at? And like I was saying up until then, and up until very recently, I've been on my own here in Rhode Island and I very much believe in these causes of social justice. I believe that, Black Lives Matter. I, 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 that's where I stand on these issues. And I don't think it's a matter of political opinion. It's either you're on the side of decency and morality or you're not. So a handful of weeks ago, maybe about a, yeah, four weeks ago now, I, uh, it was brought to my attention or I came across it on Twitter um, my state director, Ken Pfeffer, who, again, uh, lives in New Jersey and was the state director for New Jersey, Rhode Island, and Vermont, whom I had minimal contact with. We would email each other when there was issues, but he was always super nice to me, and I didn't really have to talk to him that much. You know, cases were automatically assigned to me, and I handled them. Um, I wasn't friends with him on Facebook. Um, so, you know, I assumed... He was a, he's an older guy with a mustache, so I assumed he was probably conservative and a Republican. That's not what upsets me about all of this. But it like it, it it came to my attention a series of Facebook posts that he posted on his personal Facebook page that people were sharing on Twitter and saying, "Mufon, is this cool with you? Does this represent you? What is going on with this guy?" It was the first I 
seen them because, like I said, I wasn't face friends with him on Facebook or had any kind of a you know personal relationship with him at all. And the series of posts on his personal Facebook page were just disgusting and shitty. You know, it was misogynistic and racist and um, seeming to promote violence against people who are Democrats, you know, and it was shocking to me. And it didn't surprise me that he, you know, was a Republican or a right thinking person, right wing thinking person, but this is beyond that. The stuff that he was posting on his Facebook is not a matter of political opinion. It was racist, misogynistic, promoting violence, and generally just disgusting and uneducated. Just to give you a sense of some of the things he was posting, and it was all, you know, those shitty memes that are just completely uneducated and, and, and gross. One of them was, uh, it, it, it said the joke was, oh, maybe these protesters will, you know, disperse if we fire job applications into their, you know, ranks. Um, one of them had a picture of uh, the Statue of Liberty, like, on her knees crying, and his, his words under it were like, you know, something referencing cotton picking, and he'll go cotton picking for these people if they don't want to get a real job. Another one of them was a Hillary Clinton, Monica Lewinsky sex joke, like, because that's super topical. Um, and then another one was, um, say, it, it, it referenced the fact that there were, um, during, during this most recent, you know, uh, uh, protests and movements that gun ownership had surged and he b said like no so let's lock and load people under it you know like because he wants to go kill everybody um and it was stuff like that so i collected screenshots of a lot of it and i sent an email to mufon's executive director jan harzan and the director of investi international investigation steve hudgens um and I said, essentially, are you aware of this? This is my state director. Um, this person is a supervisor of other people. He is representing MUFON. Um, where do you stand on this? I asked them, I, I said straight up, I said, this guy, Ken Seffer, needs to be removed from his position. Um, and I, I laid out the case. I just laid it all out there. How do you, what do you guys, where do you stand on this? Is this the values that you represent? Um, is this, you know, what MUFON, you want MUFON space to be out there? Um, and I didn't hear back right away. Um, it was about a week and I had sent a follow-up email saying, hi, I just, I, I want to know if you're going to address my email. You know, this seems important to me. Um, Steve Hudgens, the international director of investigations, emailed me back first after I after my follow-up, and he said, essentially, I've been in MUFON since 1991, and if I were to give in to everybody's ultimatum about having someone else removed from MUFON, I would get nothing done, and everybody would be removed from MUFON. So I will take this as your resignation from international directorship, working with the cat. So he removed me from directorship of Sweden then and there. I emailed him back and I said, thank you for making it very clear where you stand on this. And at that point, I kind of thought I was done. I was like, well, fuck this. You know, obviously I'm done. I'm not going to like wait weeks and weeks for a response. You know, you don't, you shouldn't have to think about this. Um, and I believe it was the next day that I did get an email back from MUFON's executive director, Jan Harzan. But he made it very clear that he appreciated being informed about this um, and that he, I, I'm trying to remember if he said that he, I think that he had said in his email that that was the first he had heard of these posts on Ken Pepper's Facebook. Um, and he, he thanked me for bringing it to their attention. He wanted to let me know that Ken Pfeffer had been, as of right then, he had been removed as the director from Rhode Island. 
and Vermont, but he was going to be re- retaining his directorship of New Jersey. No, it's just so funny. It's like, well, that kind of stuff doesn't fly in Vermont and Rhode Island, but New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. So he, Jan Harzan, um, stated that racism and misogyny and threats of violence absolutely do not reflect MUFON's values. They don't, in his words, I believe he said that they, they don't tolerate it, although obviously there is some tolerating. He thanked me and he hoped that I would continue to work for the organization. Um, and he, again, thanked, thanked me for bringing it to his attention and, and that they, they, they don't move on. He personally doesn't believe in those disgusting ideals and he hopes that people don't think that MUFON stands for it. So um, I replied and I said, thank you for taking some action and thank you for your response. Although I am extremely disappointed in Ken's retaining his New Jersey directorship. Um, Obviously there's still work to be done, you know? So um, that's where we left that there. But anyway, uh, about a week and a half ago, I got uh, a, a phone call out of the blue from a gentleman named Doug, who is the um, director of investigations for the state. And he's in Denver, um, Colorado. And uh, he was a real nice guy. And he called me out of the blue and he wanted to know, He first of all, he wanted to thank me for the email. He had been, in, he works with Jan Harzan. And I guess Jan Harzan had asked him to call me to talk to me more about um, what had happened and why they had done what they had, why they had, you know, agreed with me that these posts and these views were disgusting and uh, removed him from his positions except for New Jersey. Um, Doug explained it to me that, you know, MUFON likes to give a certain, likes to give a certain amount of autonomy to state organizations as if they're kind of a franchise and on their own and they don't like to just sort of run in and remove someone from a post or a shift or, or whatever you're going to call it due to personal beliefs. But he told me that he absolutely agreed with my thoughts on these posts and he thought that they were disgusting and he thought that they had absolutely no place in MUFON that to, to, to espouse these sorts of positions and he found them to be personally reprehensible. And so I guess in his mind or his, in his opinion or in the way MUFON sees it is they let people sort of, I don't know. I don't know how to phrase this, get away with a certain amount of stuff until it's absolutely, I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, I mean, it just sounds like, you know, MUFON is like, old school kind of old timey and you know hasn't caught up with yeah and i think that it's definitely yeah i i agree and i think that if you look across the board if you look at who is in directors and regional director positions across the country it's it's typically older people it's typically retirees you know it's people who have retired from law enforcement a lot scarily enough you, you know um, or it's people who were into technology, a lot of retirees, you know, and a lot of investigators and a lot of people who there's, there's a newer, younger UFO force out there, but they're, they, they're not in MUFON, you know, and a lot of them have quit MUFON because of stuff like this. And that's where I'm like finding myself torn. And I don't, I, I, I make it clear to to try to make it as clear as I possibly can where I stand as far as social justice. Um, Like I said, I believe that black lives matter. I believe that police are out of control. I believe that our, the, the administration is a fucking shit show. And I don't know if it, I'm on the younger end of being like a MUFON person, you know, at 44, I'm probably on the younger end of anybody who works for MUFON. Um, I'm certainly not like a young guy, but um, 
kind of right in the middle of that age-wise. But, you know, yeah, like I said, if you look across the board, MUFON tends to be old white dudes. And I don't really know if I want to be uh, – try to – I don't know if it really is important to me to change MUFON, you know? I can only really control what – ultimately, I can only really control what goes on in my state, in my region. And and to be honest, I – I'm not the director of Rhode Island, but I'm the only person here. So I kind of have a degree of autonomy, but I don't have to tolerate any bullshit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, MUFON's stated objective is looking into the UFO subject for the benefit of all humanity. And, um, you know, when I spoke with Doug in, in, in Denver over the phone, like he, he said, yeah, we can't be, we can't be stating that we're looking into this phenomenon for the benefit of humanity while allowing people who work with us to be racist and misogynist. It's, you, you know, it, we can't turn, he agreed, thankfully, and I appreciated that. He agreed that we, that MUFON cannot turn a blind eye to this and more, he agreed that more needs to be done. And he asked me for my input, about what more could be done. And I, I appreciated that. Whether I continue to work for MUFON or not, I appreciated that he agreed with me and that he asked for my input as far as what MUFON could do better. I think that's that's a good point to stop at. We'll uh, definitely talk to you in the future. I'm very curious to see where this story goes and where MUFON goes and... I'll keep you updated. I'll keep you updated with with, with whatever happens. And uh, I just want to say again, um, congratulations about the uh, the book and the, the the publishing and all that stuff. I think that's really great. You've earned it. So it sounds like a uh, UFO group founded in. Podunk, Illinois, in 1969 is a little out of date, out of touch. Who knew? Um, so that was Eric Smith, a uh, field investigator uh, in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, uh, with MUFON. And thanks again, Eric, for talking to us. And um, next up, Andy Gitlitz is going to talk to us about Jay Posadas. Well, uh, Posadas was a guy named Homero Cristalli from Argentina. He was the children of Italian immigrants to Argentina in the 1900s. And he basically came from his working class impoverished origins in Buenos Aires to become the leader of the Trotskyist movements in Latin America in the 50s and early 60s. And uh, at that point, he, he split from the Fourth International the largest Trotskyist organization. Um, and, uh, you know, through the course of the 60s, made a series of catastrophic political missteps, which made that, you know, his international fall apart. And as it did, he started to indulge more in some of the stranger aspects of his personality and his politics. And it became kind of a uh, an extreme cult around him. Uh, and today it's best known for his more idiosyncratic ideas, especially around communicating with dolphins, the necessity of nuclear war for the establishment of communism, and uh, his optimism of uh, encountering aliens and, uh, you know, some sort of socialist outcome of the UFO phenomena. Yeah, and um, maybe just ever so briefly, um, maybe you could explain what the international is or was, that concept. Yeah, so... um, after the Russian Revolution, the Russian Revolution of 1917 was led by Lenin and Trotsky. And when Lenin died, Stalin took leadership and uh, eventually exiled Trotsky. They had some uh, political differences. Uh, and throughout the 30s, Trotsky was uh, the uh, represented the left opposition to Stalin's uh, common turn, the, the communist inter- international, the third international. Um, and at the dawn of war, Trotsky believed that uh, Stalin and Hitler 
would uh, go to war with each other, wipe each other out. Uh, they, he predicted that probably the United States would probably be wiped out as well. And uh, just as World War One had culminated in this international revolution, there would be a far bigger international revolution, uh, a complete one, um, at the end of World War Two. But with the common turn wiped out, they would need leadership. So Trotsky formed a very small fourth international at the dawn of World War II with the, the goal of becoming the leadership of this uh, international revolution. Now, a lot of what Trotsky predicted about World War II came to pass um, in, in very, uh, you know, he, he seemed like a clairvoyant at some times with some of the things he predicted, but it didn't work out for the Fourth International. Most of them were killed in the course of the war, uh, including him in, in 1940. So after the war, the Fourth International reforms. It's even smaller, and it's around uh, Michel Pablo. Um, Posadas becomes the leader of the Latin American sections, uh, and Pablo has a thesis that basically the war hadn't really ended uh, or that it would restart again at any moment because capitalism was in terminal crisis. Um, and so Trotsky's prediction of this revolution was still coming at any moment uh, in the late 40s and 50s. But now this resumed war would be a nuclear war. So it would be over in an instant. It would kill an immense amount of people. Uh, but uh, after the war... Uh, there would be so much destruction that it would be much easier for uh, a socialist revolution to occur. So this is what the Trotskyist Fourth International believed in the 50s. Uh, but towards the end of the decade, it kind of backed off this idea as capitalism began to recover, as the Soviet Union uh, attempted, this, um, attempted to have a kind of peaceful coexistence with the West. Um, uh, the Trotskyists kind of moved away from this catastrophist World War III idea, uh, but Posadas did not. He doubled down on it in the 60s, and that's why the nuclear war and apocalypse aspect of Posadism was a very essential part of their politics. Yeah, and you know, I'm, you know, reading about the, uh, like, Che Guevara welcoming the bomb, and, you know, and the kind of fatalist aspect of that, which I was unaware of before I read your book, well, it came from the the reality of of how bad World War One was, and then how we could expect World War Trotsky expected World War Two to be exponentially worse, and he was correct. Uh, so they thought that you know instead of there being some kind of smooth transition between capitalism and socialism and communism, there would have to be a very sudden, major, horrific conflict. Uh, and this, you know, you see Marx predicting things like this at times in his era. Uh, you certainly see it in the Second International and the Third International. This is the catastrophist tendency uh, within revolutionary socialism. But you also see it in a number of uh, millenarian religious sects and uh, cults and this, this doomsday scenario that the contradictions are building up to such a uh, catastrophic uh, level that something you know all of a sudden is going to happen, and that's going to allow uh, people to uh, remake the world afterwards, or it's going to usher in a new era. Um, you see that in a number of forms. So Posada certainly wasn't the first to believe it, and a lot of uh, like you said, Che Guevara uh, and Fidel Castro believe that nuclear war was inevitable and even desirable. Uh, you see Mao saying things like that as well. And there were certainly people in the U.S. State Department who believed that as well, that we needed nuclear war. So are there still, this might be jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm just wondering about the uh, Posadists or the Neo-Posadists or whatever you would call them today. There's a small amount of people who are still part of the historical Posadist Fourth International uh, based in uh, Europe and in uh, Uruguay, Argentina and, and Brazil. Uh, there's very few of them, though, and they're they're very old and um, not writing very much. But the the one thing uh, that they've written during the pandemic uh, comes from the the Europeans at Posadist today, uh, and they 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 did write that they saw the pandemic as um, providing cover for a uh, an eventual nuclear war between the United States and Russia. Um, so I could send you that link, and you can put it in the show notes if you want. Yeah. Um, yeah, how's that supposed to work? Well, there, there's some kind of exercise that they see as preparing for uh, a nuclear war between 
you know, essentially the East and the West. Um, and they, they publish occasionally about extraterrestrial stuff, but usually it's just mainstream articles about SETI, the search for extraterrestrial life. Um, uh, but they don't publish much in general. I mean, the most of, most people are familiar with Posadism today, at least in the United States and England, through these meme pages like the Intergalactic Workers League Posadist, who are you know largely satirical. Um, they have some political points, but they're they're not uh, they're not a uh, you know actual militant Trotskyists who are you know trying to intervene in in local and international politics. They're more making uh, comments on the, the state of the left. Um, and their memes tend to be uh, very celebratory of aliens, UFOs, and nuclear war. <laughs> and um, let's let's talk about the alien uh, part of this. When did um, alien beliefs or ideas about UFOs come into Passad's way of thinking? Well, the, one of the founders of Passad's first group in Argentina was a guy named Dante Minizzoli, Um and he was really interested in futurism, science fiction, and uh, Soviet cosmism, which was, uh, you know, some of the Bolsheviks believed in space travel um, and, and meeting aliens and that kind of thing. So uh, early on, when the, when the organization first started in 1947, uh, Minizzoli proposed that the growing interest in Aliens after the the Roswell incident and uh, Kenneth Arnold's uh, flying saucer sightings in the United States, uh, which were you know spreading the world in tabloids, people were seeing UFOs everywhere. Minnesota proposed that they write about this phenomenon, produce an analysis of what it means that aliens are visiting Earth because he really believed in it. Um, but the organization kind of shut him up at the time. They said this is not what we we should be focusing on. But then 20 years later, when the Posadas International believes itself to be the inheritors of the tradition of, of Trotsky and Lenin and Marx, um, he had more confidence to say, like, look, we're the vanguard of world revolution. We have to be talking about what's going on with the UFO phenomenon aliens. So he was pushing it very hard in the 60s, um, relating it to works of Engels, um, relating it to... Uh, um, the debate between Lenin and Bogdanov, who was a science fiction writer, Bolshevik, uh, and saying that this is the right time to bring up these questions again. Um, and one branch of the Posadas International uh, really still thought this was a stupid and embarrassing thing to talk about. And Posadas sort of intervenes in a speech in 67, um, where he says, yes, the UFO phenomenon is real. Yes, it's aliens. Yeah, if uh, aliens are visiting, they're far more advanced than us, and we have a lot to learn from them, and we should try to learn from them. But we shouldn't really worry too much about this subject because we already have everything we need on Earth to bring humanity to the next stage of existence. And he says that this is proven by uh, what's going on in the Soviet Union and the worker states where there's no longer poverty and, and homelessness and, and such. Um, so he kind of split the difference between the two sides and uh, never really talked about it again, although he, he writes about it privately. Um, but the the speech was published in the Posadas Press, not in every section, but in uh, two or three sections. They published uh, the speech uh, as an essay called Flying Saucers, uh, the, the Process of... I, I can't even... Uh, it's a very long title. I can't even remember off the top of my head right now. Um, but this became becomes like a legendary uh, article um, amongst Trotskyists who already read the Posadas Press to sort of make fun of it and make themselves feel less crazy about what whatever sect they were in. Um, so it became like an in-joke amongst Trotskyists that the Posadists believed in UFOs. Uh, and that kind of remained the case um, even after his death. He was, you know, little-known figure by the time he died with very few followers uh, but then that kind of legend of the Posadists uh, being into UFOs kind of just stayed in the discourse when, you know, like leftists would drink with each other after a demonstration and talk about how weird the left is. The Posadists would come up as this kind of like folkloric thing. And in the 2000s, the 40 and Times wrote an article about them um, making them, you know, something that was talked about, about a lot on like leftist message boards. 
Uh, and then finally, interest really grew in uh, 2016 um, in connection with the fully automated luxury communism meme that had like a spinoff about space. And then finally, a spinoff about Posadism. But in general, in, in 2016, uh, there was a lot of interest in like obscure and extreme uh, political ideas um, on the left and the right. Uh, so Posadas was sort of cartoonishly reincarnated into this spectrum of like different weird ideologies that people could like try out and represent in, in funny ways. And and why you know did is there a Posadist explanation of why um, we've had contact with UFOs but they haven't you know they've made appearances but they haven't made formal contact or stuck around? Yeah, the the work of Dante Minazzoli, um after he left the movement. Uh, was com- totally uh, devoted to ufology. And he wrote a book called Why Haven't the Extraterrestrials Made Public Contact? Uh, in uh, 87, I believe it's published. Uh, and, and it argues that, um, you know, UFOs have been visiting us for forever, but they stopped at uh, the, the Industrial Revolution um, because they were worried uh, of coming into conflict with humans, uh, they were worried about the growth of, uh, you know, world wars and uh, technology, um, you know, uh, war technology. But then when we started having nuclear weapons and started using nuclear weapons and nuclear power, they realized that they kind of had to come back and supervise us and see if we are going to progress past this moment of potential self-destruction um, into into communism essentially into uh the unity of of all humans on the planet and the end of wars and uh this this like a uh, peaceful era of technological expansion using what we've discovered in the course of of world war ii splitting the atom for example uh to unify and improve humanity instead of destroying it um so basically mizzoli believes that they came back to watch us and wait for the right moment to make first contact um, in the 80s, he's particularly concerned that as the Soviet Union falls apart, the imperialist powers are going to need an excuse to, uh, uh, to, to continue to expand and maintain their military budgets. So he was worried that they, they would resort to enemy alien propaganda, as the neoposadists call it, um, sci-fi that portrays aliens as evil, or uh, disinformation passed off to other ufologists that aliens are abducting and abusing people and uh, mutilating their cattle and that kind of thing. So people would, would think that aliens, if they come, are uh, our enemies and that we're going to need uh, you know better military powers to attack it. Um, because there's no longer a communist threat, they would need to continue to maintain their military some other way. And this would further uh, dissuade the aliens from intervening with uh uh, um, for, to present themselves to us uh, because they would be attacked as soon as they arrive. Um, so I guess maybe that's just where we are right now. We are still, uh, UFOs are still visiting, still seeing if we're uh, worthy uh, of contact, um, and they're they're seeing that we're not. Yeah, and uh, well, that's, that's a bummer. Um, uh, where, where do the dolphins fit into all of this? So dolphins have always been a strange trope in uh, SETI and ufology circles in a number of different ways. Uh, but for Posadas, he was interested in them through the work of Igor Tcharkovsky, who was a Russian midwife um, in the, the uh, 80s, uh, 70s and 80s in Russia. Um, and Posadas was uh, very at the end of his life reading, I think, some tabloids, some New Age publications, and came across Tchaikovsky's work about water birth. Um, and he probably believed that Tchaikovsky was some kind of Soviet scientist. In reality, he was uh, um, not uh, sanctioned by the state, and I think he was he even had to go into exile. Um, but these experiments involved uh, uh, mothers giving birth in the Black Sea at one point, and Tchaikovsky said that dolphins would naturally come to the scene of the birth and help out as these natural midwives. And he theorized that humans and dolphins have some kind of psychic connection uh, from, you know, our similar origins in the sea. And that also, if babies are born underwater with the help of a dolphin, 
they would develop these kind of superhuman powers. So if all of humanity could be born this way, there would be this new man with uh, advanced uh, capabilities. And Posadas, who was interested in um, having fraternal relations with aliens and also uh, with the Earth itself, with the animals and the, the plants on Earth, he believed in this very extreme utopian idea of total unity between Earth and the cosmos and nature, uh, that Tchaikovsky's work was showing one way we can become closer to animals. And he also saw Soviet experiments in giving birth in space as being connected to this as well. But again, this was written when Posadas was uh, just about a year away from dying. So his ideas were becoming truly very strange and uh, affected during this time. Yeah. um, Do you have any idea how the dolphins were supposed to help humans give birth? (laughs) Like how that would work? Uh, yeah, Tchaikovsky writes about this. He says that the woman starts giving birth and the dolphins just, you know, sense it happening and they come over and help. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't think they physically help. I think just their presence kind of uh, blesses the, the moment or something. Uh, I think it's related to this idea that dolphins sometimes help sailors who are lost at sea, uh, which um, John Lilly actually wrote about. Um he was a uh, one of the progenitors of the search for extraterrestrial life, SETI, along with Carl Sagan and Joseph Shklovsky. And he had done a lot of research with dolphins in the, the 50s and 60s. Um, so there's, there's a linkage there that I, I don't totally understand. But again, like there's no shortage of science fiction and uh, you know, futurist speculation about um dolphin communication and intelligence and it's and their relation to us or what we have to learn from them a lot of the stuff Posadas writes about you kind of just don't know where he got it from um i don't think he made it up but i think he might have been reading tabloids and and, and he was uh i guess kind of credulous about what he wanted to be credulous about yeah and you know that's kind of what's interesting about him is you know the kind of two halves of that coin or the two sides of that coin, you know, I mean, you know, all these crazy ideas that we could talk about forever, but at the same time, at least in the beginning, he was, you know, really committed to doing real work, you know, like real political work. It wasn't like all just airy fairy stuff. Yeah. He was a really serious militant, uh, union organizer and then communists. And he, was very good at it. Um, he was very charismatic. He was very energetic. Um, he really respected the discipline and the hierarchy of a revolutionary organization. And he was always uh, very content to serve those above him, um, whether it be the the leader of his cadre in, in Argentina or the, the leadership of the Fourth International during the war, which is based in New York. He was always very eager to please. Um, And even when he came to lead his own organization, he really saw themselves as subservient to to Juan Perón and the Peronist movement in Argentina. And so they kind of distinguished themselves politically as having this very uh, positive relationship to national populist movements like Peronism um, around South America. seeing them as being, uh, you know, advancing the workers to a better position of power. Um, And I think that is related to how um, positive the Posadas came to be in the uh, late 60s and early 70s as their actual influence and power was reduced to a very small level, how optimistic they were about these huge, objective, powerful structures like, uh, you know, like the Soviet Union, like aliens... Uh, like, uh, you know, a sort of faded historical reckoning um, that there was always this uh, kind of disciplined subservience to this theological idea that history was just faded to move to this point of socialism and communism. Yeah. And and as far as his like particular leadership style or him as a person, I've definitely seen references to him as like, a cult leader or a charismatic type leader. What's the kind of truth around that? A lot of people who are in the movement described it as a cult. 
and they they don't necessarily think that all Leninist organizations are cults, although uh, there is a, a book by two ex-Trotskyists called uh, On the Edge Political Cults of the Right and Left, I think it's called. And they argue that Leninism, if done correctly, is a cult. Um, but uh, regardless, Posadism had a uh, extreme um, devotion to P- Posadas as the leader. You could not question him. Um, he would talk to you one-on-one in these like uh, sessions to kind of figure out who you are and to see what you wanted and to try to win you over. Um, if you did something wrong, you would be criticized in a group. You would be punished by doing more, by give, be giving more tasks to perform, you know, uh, printing the newspaper, distributing it, um, recruiting or whatever. And if you did those tasks well, you would be rewarded with more tasks. So there's this escalated, escalating spiral of commitments. And you were supposed to just get all satisfaction in life from your, uh, your militancy in the international. Um, there was also uh, extreme moralist restrictions on life in the movement. If you were going to get married, you needed the permission of Posadas. Uh, if you were going to have children, you needed the permission. Uh, sex could only be for reproductive purposes. And Posadas would occasionally split married couples apart. So their libidinal energies would be directed only towards the movement. Um, so it was, this was incredibly abusive, but this was something that was going on in the Posadas International uh, in the late 50s and early 60s. And then the 70s, he actually starts, uh, he sends his, his wife away um, in this uh, kind of bizarre sex scandal that was likely in his head, but I don't know. Um, and then starts uh, sleeping with a younger woman in the movement, uh, has a child with her who becomes like the sort of messianic star child of the movement um, who he predicts will, you know, lead the, the international and the revolution after his death. Um, and uh, so then at, at this point, it really has all the telltale signs of a cult, um, including just this idea that he, that uh, the way that they live in their little communal villa outside of, at this point, he's in Rome. The way that they live um, means everything to their to the determination of their politics. Uh, so it, it it becomes like many new communist or new religious movements. It just shrinks to the size of a, a singular commune. Yeah, and and how about uh, the this term I've seen used, fully automated luxury communism, or for, fully automated luxury gay communism? Where did mm-hmm. that come from? That was coined by Aaron Bastani, who's a British writer. Uh, he, he put out a book about it last year. And this is the idea that um, as uh, the, the forces of production develop in capitalism, you know, better machinery, um, less need for human inputs, variable capital into the, the reproduction of, uh, of capital, that w- there's no longer going to need to be workers. Like everything will be more or less automated or you would need much less work than you needed previously. And Bastani believes that we're on that route and through uh, socialist uh, measures, we can make a kind of utopian uh, variant of this. You know, like we're on the the path that we're on now, that would look like mass unemployment and maybe a meager uh, universal basic income. But Bastani proposes that instead of that, we can just get rid of work and wage labor and have this kind of utopian situation where everything that we need is provided for us uh, and we can dedicate our lives to doing something more meaningful than wage labor. Um, And uh, through that, he's also made criticisms of Elon Musk's idea of mining asteroids uh, using drones, the space drones that would go and mine uh, asteroids and uh, for rare minerals that are very rare and expensive and, and destructive on Earth. And Bastani says like, okay, well, if you do this, then hopefully that'll mean we won't have to mine on Earth anymore. We won't have to um, do this incredibly dangerous, destructive process. Uh, But that means you won't get any money from uh, mining the asteroids because you'll have to, if you're going to make a profit on that, you're going to have to limit the supply of the minerals that you mine um, in order to keep the prices high. 
So Bastani points out that through automation, the uh, uh, a, a lot of the uh, the way that the capitalist market works and reproduces itself will fall apart, uh, and and should logically fall apart. Um, so through the mining thing, that's where space comes into it, and then basically just through the use of the word space, there became these ideas of you know b- making space colonies. Uh, meeting aliens, making space colonies with aliens, and uh, Posadas began to show up in those memes. Right, right. It's like everybody's sort of swimming around in these waters as far as I guess with dolphins helping them give birth, as far as like where these ideas come from and the interchange. Um, You know, the fully automated luxury communism really reminds me of uh, Timothy Leary, you know, in the 80s writing about, you know, O'Neill space colonies and the idea that once we get out of, get off the earth where everything is abundant, um, you know, we'll all be able to live live our best lives. But But he was doing it from like this kind of weird, almost libertarian place where like, we'll all work for these benevolent corporations, <laughs> you know, they'll all have our best interests in mind. Yeah, what's really interesting about futurists like him in the in the sixties and seventies um, is that they they were basically writing from a place of like obviously within ten years, fifteen years, technology is going to advance to to a point where nobody's going to need to work anymore. There's going to be so much wealth that we can just freely. Dis- they had this idea of UBI in the sixties, and people just wrote about it as if like, of course, this is going to happen, um, and that was connected to. This feeling that everything, you know, even though we were on the brink of nuclear war, that everything was kind of getting better or getting to a place of resolution. You know, like the moon landing obviously had these uh, over uh, overtures of the Cold War and a, and a militarist propagandist project by the United States. But it was the most unifying event in the history of mankind. Everybody watched it. Everybody felt like they had achieved something, contributed to this height of humanity, and they assumed we would only get higher and get better and, you know, achieve more things. And if we could just not kill each other with, with nuclear weapons, that we would advance to a higher level through this this Cold War conflict, we would get to a better place. But that's not what happens. Uh, so now um, the, the futurists have the same, basically the same ideas as the futurists did in the 60s and 70s. But they're no longer utopian, you know, like the idea, like Peter Thiel talks about this life expansion stuff that Leary would talk about. Uh, Elon Musk talks about space colonization. Jeff Bezos talks about building O'Neill colonies. But this is no longer about the unification and liberation of mankind. It's about saving, uh, preserving class relations uh, through, you know, making a Elysium kind of colony just for the rich in space whereas all of the wage laborers that are necessary just kind of rot on earth. So is the future of socialism in outer space? Uh, personally, I don't, I don't see how that could be possible. Uh, like, um, I like, I mean, I like the idea that humanity has entered space and achieved this, this great thing. Uh, but I think really the, the fascination with space uh, and the optimism that space travel will resolve the problems on Earth is a, is a fantasy. We have to we have to protect the Earth. This is our only home. This is the only place we know how to live. Mars will not be a good place to live. Uh, the The Moon will not provide us with. Uh, you know, there's this idea in um, Anne Rand of of Gat's Gulch, where you just you go to a a desert, and with the right machine, you can just produce everything you need. And this is, I think what's motivating Musk and Teal to believe you can have a colony on Mars. Like they think that they're just so smart that they're going to invent what they need to do it. And that's not true. Um, and where the, the reality is we're destroying the ecosystems on which human life is based. We're making entire regions of the planet uninhabitable right now, day by day. So the fact that these people are putting so much work into launching uh, satellites for uh, better internet and under the promise that one day that technology will take us to Mars uh, is is a complete bullshit, cynical distraction um, from what we need to be doing right now. Here, here. <laughs> <laughs>
I couldn't have put it better myself. Um, thanks so much for talking to us, Andy. Um, maybe you could just tell people the name of your book and where they can get it. It's called I Want to Believe, uh, or as I like to call it, The Green Book. Um, you can get it uh, from Pluto Press, the publisher's Pluto Press, and with a discount code Posadas20 for 20% off. It's also available through Topos Books, an independent bookstore in New York. And it's available through the the main uh, retail websites as well until bookstores reopen. Um, so you can get it there. Great. And um, and what is the name of your podcast? I do the Antifada, um, which is uh, kind of a, you know, we try to be a funny, uh, po- we try to be a humorous take on left-wing and revolutionary politics, but also informative on a, on on the struggle today and its history. Very cool. Hey, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.